So, Maria, as you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Grand Rapids, Michigan. What? To Pakistani-American parents. And so we had freshly home-cooked Pakistani food at all times at home. And a lot of times the kind of food that you might have at Indian restaurants is, like, very heavy or really greasy. Mm -hmm. My my parents were, like, very responsible about that sort of stuff. And so we had good-for-you, freshly-cooked Pakistani food. It sounds and delicious. I, it, it totally was. Now, I, my mom, this is for my mom, like, I should have appreciated it more. I shouldn't have complained and begged for, like, processed fish sticks all the time. Like, that's, like, <laughs> that's my bad. But the other piece of something that really informed how I thought about food is that when I was five years old, like, a lot of people in my religious community started eating what they called halal meat, uh, what's now called zabiha meat, but meat slaughtered in a, in a Muslim way, which is, like, you take off the head, the death happens very quickly, the blood drains out very quickly. It, it's kind of like kosher and you say a Muslim prayer while you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And so I was really into this. I got my whole family really into it. But at the age of five, it was who I was. And so I, I continue to only eat halal meat mm-hmm. from that time. And at that time, it was for religious reasons or whatever a five-year-old thinks about food. But I think now it has a lot to do with the butchers that we use and the fact that I know where my meat is coming from and that in the New York area at least there's like a couple of sources of the meat Mm -hmm. and you all know what it is and it feels good and you know it's like a lot of times certified humane. So that's my meat trajectory. I'll also add the fact that I studied all the time in school and I thought I was like very busy and that led to me not prioritizing spending time cooking food. It was like a time suck for me and Mm -hmm. it was like the least efficient option and so I never really got into good food. Like, I loved fast food. I love chain restaurants. What is your favorite chain thing. restaurant? Chili's, by far. I had my birthday party at Chili's. I've had birthday parties at Chili's and at Taco Bell, Amazing. for sure. I'm talking about, like, 30, 40 people at these restaurants. Mm-hmm. I had a really good friend in law school, Allison Tate, who is just a wonderful home cook. And through her, I learned a lot about this. And then by the time I made it to New York and I was like working, I was very busy and I, I started to become more curious about food. And I started getting this like incredible farmer's market box that was curated and had instructions about cooking tips in it. Mm-hmm. And that just transformed my life because I actually learned how to cook. I love doing things that I'm good at. It's who I am also. And so <laughs> that that transformed into me really caring about being a home cook and then understanding things about ingredients or the care it takes to cook. And we're going to have a chance later today to chat with the woman who started the company that changed my life, who's the author of all of those recipe cards and cooking tricks that that really informed my cooking, Kate. So that's kind of my story. I care about food now. I think very differently about food than I did like five years ago. That's so cool. This is one thing that's been really fun about our friendship, I think, is that we both care about food, come from families where food is really important for cultural reasons. Yes. But then also, you know, we're American women now who eat a wide variety of stuff, but still really want to be thinking about what kind of stuff we're putting into our bodies and onto our plates, but coming from different backgrounds. I'm, as you know, so lucky to live in the gorgeous Hudson Valley, which I often describe to people <laughs> like as what rich people would like to imagine the countryside is like. It's uh, like gorgeous yes. rolling hills, beautiful river, dotted with small farms that are owned by local farmers, often growing organic crops and hand raising their cattle and things like that. So it's just absolutely beautiful and the food is amazing. But it in no way reflects the vast majority of agricultural production in America. But it just means that I have this like amazing access to all of this 
great food and often at less insane prices than it might be in other places because it's nearby. And I grew up also with a first generation immigrant mom. Uh, my mom is Japanese and like health crazed or so I thought as a child. Now, <laughs> now I'm like, thank you, mom. I'm so grateful for the habits that she gave to me so that as an adult, yeah. it's not a struggle for me to get into eating lots of fruits and vegetables and want to prepare things that are not too fat or meat heavy because I just prefer it. Yeah. So all of this stuff is so important to me too. And thinking also about like all the ethical implications for the environment and for humane raising of animals. And then even more importantly for me, what all this means for the actual people involved in the production of food and who has access to the food. Like all that stuff is very much on my mind as I'm walking around the grocery store. Amazing, yes. Hello, and welcome to In Theory, the podcast where we talk about the theories that help us make sense of the world. I'm Naran Khan. And I'm Maria Sachko Sassiri. Obviously, today we're talking about food. How do we source and choose what we eat? How do we think about food justice and how our society eats more broadly? We're going to be tackling questions about where our food comes from, how to make ethical decisions about our food, um, and we're going to have a chance to speak with a special guest, Kate Galassi, who's a food activist in New York City and one of Naran's dear friends. Uh, We're going to start today with an interview that Naran did with Kate and then go from there to talk about some of the social and economic structures that have helped create the food system that we have today. We'll discuss assembly line meat, food deserts, and the struggle to eat both ethically and well. We're super lucky today to talk through some of this stuff with a friend of the show, Kate Galassi. Kate is currently the New York Project Head of Innovative Produce Supplier Natura, and she co-founded the curated farmer's market box, Quincible. She's worked on farms and in farmers markets and was the chief forager at the Spotted Pig in New York City. She's also the person who taught me how to cook. (laughs) (laughs) So here's some of my conversation with the amazing Kate. I always cook with honey to sweeten up the night. We always cook with honey. Yay, thank you for being here. Let's get started with maybe asking you how you got interested in food issues and maybe unpack the progression. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So in college, the guy who lived in the room next to me was a vegan and was like, hey, you should be vegan. Like, don't eat animals. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, no, I totally shouldn't be eating animals. So Two weeks into college, I went vegan. And the thing that stuck with me the most is that it makes you hyper aware of what you're putting in your body and how things are made. Mm -hmm. Because you're checking ingredient lists on every single package of food, and there are weird things in everything that you eat. So there are dyes made out of insects, there's gelatin, there are additives from the lining of pig stomachs, and mostly people don't know this. And so once you get this special information, it gives you an understanding that how we view our food and how our food is actually made, there's a very big disconnect between those two things. And the more I learned about my food, the more I got interested in that disconnect, but also in understanding why do we eat so much processed food when there's so much great food that's out there. Yeah. And eventually I stopped being vegan partly because 
most vegans eat a ton of highly processed soy fake meats and soy milk. And once I felt like I could find good farms to support that were treating their animals well, then I would rather eat something that's unprocessed and has an animal product rather than something that's highly processed made with like GMO soy. Totally fair. Kate, what are some common misperceptions people have about their food that they're having every day? Well, I think the starting point is we like to imagine the tiny pastoral farm, (laughs) you know, husband and wife waking up and milking the cows. And what is very hard to imagine is just how industrial everything is. So even when you buy a gallon of milk, which is one of the least processed foods you can buy in the supermarket, it still involves a ton of machinery. The cows are milked by machine, the barns are cleaned by machine, the feed is distributed often by automatic machines, and then there can be antibiotics and hormones that are used used on the cows prophylactically. And so what we think of as a very natural thing actually can have huge industry behind it. And I think, you know, the perfect analogy for me is your car appears just as like this finished product. But Mm -hmm. then when you start to think what had to happen to make that car, it's not too different on a farm. It's just that like, we don't think about a tomato being associated with machines, but typical tomato you find at the supermarket probably was touched by as many machines as were used to make your car. So there are machines that are used to plow the soil, plant the seeds, spray the plants, irrigate the plants. A lot of stuff is picked automatically or then it's washed automatically, sprayed post-harvest. So all of your citrus is sprayed with wax or your cucumbers, edible wax, but wax nonetheless. All of your salads and plastic containers are gassed to make last longer. And then the one of the things that helps keep stuff preserved is getting it into a cold room immediately. So there are these crazy cold room facilities on big farms now. So, you know, the idea that when people say factory farming for animals and never for vegetables, I always think it's totally weird because big farms are <laughs> as much like factories as anything else, any other big industry in the US. Uh And I think that's very hard for most people to envision that. There are a couple of areas where it's become more understood. So anytime we have a foodborne illness outbreak, Mm -hmm. then that reveals the mishandling of meat with E. coli and salmonella, that's become much more prevalent. And so then people begin to understand, okay, well, 10,000 cows living in one barn then you can start to imagine what that actually looks like. But that's on the largest scale, but the whole medium can still be a little unsettling to understand what that's really like and just how many chemicals are used along the whole process. So disappointing. Yeah, it is disappointing. (laughs) Organic produce can still be sprayed with chemicals. Those chemicals just have to be certified organic. And the two things you need for that to happen is that it needs to be a naturally occurring substance. So like copper is a naturally occurring mineral, not synthesized, and the spray can't be petroleum-based. So most chemical sprays used in agriculture are oil-based because that's what makes them stick to the plants and make them more effective. So if you have a water-based chemical spray and the active ingredient is something that occurs naturally, like copper or chrysanthemums make a good pesticide, um, and there are all kinds of other things like that, then you can spray it and still be certified organic. So 
especially like with tomato farms, there are a lot of diseases, fungus, blights that can attack tomato plants and copper can kill those. So you might buy organic tomatoes and those tomatoes will have been sprayed every day with copper for weeks before you buy them. Is that bad for you? Is it worse for you than traditional pesticides? Probably not, (laughs) but talk about misconception. And so that's what's really hard. So then how do you explain to somebody the nuance of, okay, yes, the organic produce has probably been sprayed less, but it's still been sprayed with some stuff. We think that stuff isn't as bad as the other stuff, but we don't really know because there's not a lot of studies on this that aren't sponsored by Monsanto. Right, right. That is such a nuanced story to tell a consumer. And nobody really wants to tell that story. Right. So all of the organic farms, all of the organic marketing is all about a much more simplistic story that doesn't actually really get at the truth. Right. I mean, I guess the onus of understanding everything is on the consumer, but I I wonder who bears the burden the most. And there are people who have the time to do this. Lots of people don't. One of the things about food that makes it a very exciting industry to work in, but also a little overwhelming is that food is at the intersection of so many different issues. So you've got environmental issues, you've got farm worker rights issues, we've got millions of undocumented workers in this country working in agriculture. And it gets down to local economies, it gets down to our health, obesity issues, cancer issues that are associated with pesticides, culture, culture, race, class. Absolutely. And also how much can you pay for food and how much should food cost and what should the government subsidize? The government spends hundreds of millions of dollars every year subsidizing farms and how it spends that money really shapes the agriculture industry. So there are a couple of ways to think about it. I think one of the most popular is that educating kids at a young age about this stuff makes it easier to change long-term habits. That's true for a lot of other things like sex ed and cigarettes, and you want to get them while they're young, and then they can understand the whole picture. I think ultimately one of the things that really has to change are our cultural norms, and I think that this is something that like Michael Pollan has gotten at, and even Morgan Spurlock, like Supersize Me. I think that one of the reasons that the U.S. is so far behind on a lot of food issues is that culturally we don't have as strong a food culture. We don't have a I mean, well, there was a native food culture and then we killed all of those people. So we lost that. And there are a lot of people trying to bring back both those agricultural traditions and those food traditions. But for the most part, we've lost all of that Native American history. But in most other places in the world, part of why food works better, although this isn't true always, is that agriculturally what works on the land is what people grow, informs what food people eat. And so farming and food and cultural views of dining and eating together as a family, all of those things get connected. And in the US, we have a very big disconnect between all of those things. Because in Europe, if you go some places in Europe, you can say, well, this kind of turnip has been grown in this part of Germany for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Families all over have been saving seeds for hundreds of years. And you know, you have lots of lesser examples like that. But in the US, we don't have that kind of uninterrupted history. So you said you were happy to work in the food industry. And you're kind of recounting this like very big structural barrier. Do you do you feel hopeful? <laughs> yeah. So the thing that I do love about food, and this is what most of my work revolves around, is that 
when you find good food, it is often good in more than one way. So food that is good for the land is often the food that is the tastiest. And so you can champion certain things in food and feel really excited about them. And you don't always have to sell that based on some moral or ethical idea. You can say, here is this heirloom tomato and it's green when it's ripe and it's super tasty and it's awesome to eat. And it's also coming from a small family farm. So you can kind of tackle these bigger issues in a way that's really just fun and interesting rather than having to be about something that's scary. Work can be done in food, really oriented around getting people to sit down at the dinner table and eat food. And that's one of the easiest things to convince people to do and feel excited about. It's part of why I think I'm in good company and not loving the word foodie, but this whole foodie hipster craze (laughs) on the whole has been amazing because for the first time, the idea that you would go and buy a pork butt at the farmer's market and spend six hours cooking it at home and then have all your friends over, that idea is really hip and trendy. Like nothing could be better for the food movement than that. And yes, we need subsidies. Yes, we need education in school. Yes, we need farm worker rights stuff, but You can also come at that problem from the other end of getting people excited about cooking food at home could do as much for all of these really tricky problems as big policy changes. So that's kind of where I Oh my gosh, that's totally inspiring. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I get so wrapped up and bummed out about stuff we think about. You know, here's the flip side about America having such a consumer-driven culture. So one of the things that I feel overwhelmed by right now as a problem is the Syrian refugee crisis. And I can give what little money I have access and I can make sure that's going into a good place. But I'm an ocean away from most of those people. I can't get in my car and go volunteer. I can't give old shoes or coats or whatever. There's very little ways that I can actually affect that problem. Mm -hmm. But food, if you think of it as a problem, well, then you you get to do something three times a day. Like it is one of the few issues where the just normal consumer can be really powerful. And the flip side of food being driven by consumer trends is that trends like organic and kombucha and raw eating and kale salads, all of those have had huge changes on this massive industry mm-hmm. and often for good. Like kale salad's a perfect example. 10 years ago, we were probably growing a fraction of the kale that we're growing today and people were probably eating a lot more iceberg lettuce. Like that's a total win over something that's just a pure trendy <laughs> idea. I mean, that's kind of powerful. Yeah. So I think the biggest hurdle is, okay, this is, you know, not an issue that people need to feel overwhelmed by. This is an issue that they can feel 100% positive about, get excited about. You don't have to change your whole diet. You can make small changes in the beginning. The biggest problem is that there are some certifications that are good. Mostly the certifications are meaningless. Mm -hmm. And doing consumer education about what's meaningful and what's not is incredibly complicated and starts to get bogged down in the nitty gritty that's really overwhelming. So like when it comes to meat, like certified humane is a really amazing label, means a lot. Really, that's like very well enforced, third party verification. 
cage free and free range are totally <laughs> meaningless. Like if you see that, it in no way guarantees animal welfare in any way. But in order to talk about why that is, you have to start to get into these like weird things like how many square inches right. should a chicken have? Exactly. Clipping beaks, the fact that most mm. poultry is raised like twenty thousand birds in a tiny barn that's windowless and like light controlled and you crazy know, antibiotics. Exactly. Yeah. So you so, like, how do we do consumer education without the consumer getting overwhelmed? Yeah. To me, that is, you know, as far as my career and my focus is concerned, that is one of the most important issues. Yeah. What about the money element of stuff? Making the choices that are more expensive. For some people, they would say it's, like, cost prohibitive. I think, like, if you go into a grocery store, it doesn't matter what chain it is, whether it's Walmart or Whole Foods, the organic version is going to cost more than the non-organic version. Yeah. There are a lot of reasons behind that. Part of it is about yields and being able to use synthetic fertilizers, and part of it's about labor. But part of it is also about subsidies. So if the U.S. government starts putting their money into subsidizing organic farms and organic research, those prices will start to change. And things like cereal that's made out of wheat or soda that's made with high fructose corn syrup, the prices of those might go up if the subsidies were removed. And those industries have very big lobbies. So it's very easy to say, okay, let's change the subsidies. I don't think that's really going to happen anytime soon, although we are seeing some movement on it. I think this is one thing where culturally, if you come from a family where cooking is really important and cooking from scratch is really important, like I live in a community with a lot of Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, and I go to the grocery store, and what I see people buying, okay, sure, yeah, people buy soda and cereal and whatever, but they're also buying 25 pound bags of rice and 25 pound bags of beans. Like those are the most popular items <laughs> at like, my local grocery yeah, store. Yeah. And those are whole foods that have been unprocessed. Yeah. And whether or not they're organic, like already, that's a huge step. And those are some of the cheapest items in the grocery store. Yeah. So part of it is figuring out, okay, some of it is just about blanket costs, but some of it is also like culturally, how do people cook and eat? So if what you do is mostly eat prepared foods, then like yes buying like organic frozen meals is going to be more expensive yeah there's no easy answer for that but I think also part of the reality is that if we begin to change any part of food it's going to have a lot of positive effects across the board that's to me where it feels very worthy of being a cause the more farms there are that are like 50 acres which is like a very small farm that has so many hugely positive effects for the land, for the local community, in terms of employment, in terms of the quality of the food. So, you know, it's one of these issues where like creation of small businesses gets you all of these issues at once. So if you could tell people kind of three things to think about to be more ethical eaters, what would you tell them? So the place to start is figure out what's important to you. And because food is so multifaceted, it's impossible to come become really well educated about every aspect of it. So one of the things that's really important to me is animal welfare. I've done a lot of research into the different certifications for animal welfare. And unless I can buy direct from a farm, which is becoming easier and easier, I buy certified humane. And that's really important to me. When it gets to produce, I have a much more complicated view. I buy local, even if it's conventionally grown, over something that's certified organic from Mexico. So I'd say start with the thing that's important to you Mm -hmm. and get educated on that. And the other thing that I would say is if it feels like it's work, 
don't do it. Find the things that are fun. So if what you really like, we have this thing that at home that we make, which is a broccoli salad with avocado and mustard vinaigrette. Super healthy. We eat it all the time. I eat pounds and pounds of like <laughs> locally grown organic broccoli when it's in season. So for us, it's healthy. It's just a few ingredients so I can like buy them from good sources. So find the thing that's really exciting and fun for you. If that thing happens to be nachos, awesome. Go buy like really good like local cheddar, you know, to make your nachos with. Find that thing that when you go to the grocery store, you're going to be excited to buy better ingredients. If you're like, oh God, I have to start making my own green juice at home. And then you like spend $40 (laughs) on juicing things and you get home and you hate cleaning your juicer. (laughs) That's not how to change your eating habits. And then I think the other thing to change is think about how you interact with your friends and your family around food. So that's one of the most powerful things that you can do. So when I came over to your house and I had those great chickpeas that your mom made, like, A, they were really tasty, but I want that recipe. And so sharing the things that are culturally important with each other is one of the best ways to create stronger traditions around food and better rituals. So food is a ritual for us. We do it multiple times every day. And if you think about it like that, it starts to become, I mean, this sounds very spiritual. It starts to become more sacred and more important to us. And I think the things that feel more sacred to us, we're more willing to pay attention to and make a priority in our lives. Oh my gosh, this is just like <laughs> Moving to the country peaches I'm moving to the country I'm gonna eat me a lot of peaches I'm moving to the country I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches I'm moving to the country I'm gonna eat oh my god so so interesting and so helpful I'm so glad I thought so too now that we know just a little bit more about the systems at play I think we can probably start teasing out some theory embedded in all of this we picked a handful of really different topics to visit here in the realms of economics, gender, and biology. So let's like get cracking with economics. One of the things that makes it so hard to make good food choices is because like we just don't have that much knowledge. It's really difficult to trace back where each individual piece of food in the grocery store really comes from. How do we know which things to buy and which things not to buy? And I brought this up with one of our friends, Beth Pearson. Hi, Beth. Um, Beth. (laughs) Who's one of our good friends. um, And she's a sociologist trained at Berkeley. And she was here visiting for the weekend, which was so fun. And we were talking about food. And she brought up the fact that this separation between consumers who are buying food and eating food um, and the system of production that's making all of this food makes it feel really far away and hard to connect with and therefore difficult to make choices. And she brought up the fact that, especially starting in the 20th century, our food has become part of this assembly line production system. People refer to this form of manufacturing goods as Fordism, named after Henry Ford of the car Ford. (laughs) And the idea there being that under Fordism, we're taking products and standardizing them, using assembly lines with technology to make it possible for unskilled workers to be able to get into the assembly line and be replaceable to put together these products really quickly, and also to pay these workers enough of a living wage that they could then become consumers of the things that they're producing. 
And while that makes like perfect sense for cars, it also was something that we started to do with our food. And so when Kate was talking about all of that machinery involved in producing mass scale agriculture and meat, that's the kind of thing that really takes us at a real distance from our food. If you imagine like a chicken that you buy in the grocery store, that's something that has been mass produced in one place, shipped off to be slaughtered and broken down in another place, sent somewhere else to be packaged, broken into pieces and then reorganized and then shipped all over the country to be served. So this like little chicken has become this like disaggregated hunks of meat that don't really have any strong sense of meaning behind them. And one of the things that Beth said that I thought was so smart is then it kind of falls to the companies to hire advertisers and marketing people to kind of give that product meaning again through advertising. So then you'll see like, you know, picture of a pretty happy chicken on a green farm and you're like, oh, chicken. Great. That sounds delicious. But that has very little to do with the experience that this actual chicken had like squished into this gigantic house filled with hundreds of other chickens. But for us, then our understanding of this chicken is like, oh, okay, it was like grown on this lovely farm. But then we don't really have all the information we need to go back and figure out like, where did this chicken actually come from? Should I buy this chicken or not? Totally. And not to speak in puns, but this is kind of a chicken and egg situation because, ah. haha, <laughs> you know, I was waiting to say that, um, because companies will say that consumers demand a standardized product. They talk about food in terms of products, like commercial products. Sure. And that to optimize what the consumer wants, you breed chickens that are very breast heavy or don't have the gamey taste or whatever Mm -hmm. else. And so they'll point to consumer desires and then the consumer will be like, but we had no idea what it took to get there or to make make this possible. And Mm -hmm. obviously once you develop a taste for these things or have these expectations or understand everything to be standard across the country in every way and want to be able to access every item, whether it's in season or not, that just feeds this dialogue where no one takes responsibility for like what's happening. And the the truth is like consumers are not empowered to make informed decisions in all ways. And the incentives are not there for companies to make other choices that might be changing. Let's hope it's changing. But I think the reference point of Fordism and the industrialization, especially of meat, but of other types of things, Mm -hmm. um, food products, really does help us understand why we're not capable of tracing all of the information we think we need to make empowered decisions back to whatever sources we need to have access to. Totally. And I think what you were saying about how consumers contribute to this is really important. I notice myself that if I'm going to pick out fruits from the grocery store, I don't really want the ones that are pitted and weird looking or that have bruises on Blemishes. them. Blemishes. Right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, I'm going to take that perfect round, red, rosy-cheeked apple. <laughs> if that's the choice, I'll take yeah. that one. Yeah. But then you think about how much fruit gets destroyed or thrown away and like all of the pesticides and all of the wax and all the things that go into making sure that that apple looks that way so I'll choose it. Yeah. I don't want that stuff. Totally. Um, and we end up having these habits that we keep on doing without necessarily knowing how we got those habits in the first place and what are the costs of having those habits. Totally. So like there's a couple things going on, right? So on the one hand, I worry about the environmental impact of 
having feedlots with tens of thousands of animals all at the same time dumping all of this toxic waste out of their systems into the environment and also the humane element of it in terms of 12,000 animals all squished up together growing three pounds a day and if you want Lisa Ling does a visit on a video that you can see to a feedlot and then to a slaughterhouse and you can really so see amazing. yeah how much it looks like it's just like a factory you know yeah um so there's all these impacts, but then there's also like this really real human factor, like the people who are working on in some of these industries. The AP did an investigative report recently about the shrimp industry in Thailand and the number of shrimp peeling slaves there are in Southeast Asia right now. And it's oh really, God. really chilling. It's basically like indentured servitude that just abusive, there are like children involved, all of these people just standing with their arms plunged into freezing water, peeling shrimp all day long, um, living in these like insane conditions. Oh God. And all kinds of American suppliers, supermarkets from like Walmart to Whole Foods were selling this stuff, restaurants, big chains, because the system, since this industrialized version of it is now in place, the system is so big and sprawling that Companies have a hard time knowing where everything's actually coming from. And so it meant that virtually all the major suppliers in America were selling slave shrimp. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. And I was like, crap. So I read this and I was like, I really don't want to eat slave shrimp. Yeah. But it's really hard to, like, know how to not eat slave <laughs> shrimp. So oh, a sad laugh. The other day. Yeah. I know. So the other day I was at the grocery store and I, like, needed some shrimp for this recipe. Literally, I needed five shrimp. Yeah. And so I go to the fish counter at, like, my favorite grocery store and I order some clean shrimp. And I'm like, this is, like, a small, like, farmer's market type of grocery store. So I'm sure they cleaned it themselves in the back. Yeah. And while the guy is back there wrapping it up, I look closely at the sign and actually it's from Thailand. And I was like, oh, crap yeah so i'm all like excuse me excuse me excuse me and the poor guy i think he was a little hard of hearing so he didn't turn around until he was completely done and i said uh, i'm really sorry do you know where these shrimp are cleaned yeah the guy's like uh, i don't know so he asked the guy in the back and the guy in the back says i think they were they're cleaned when they arrive oh gosh Man, I felt like the biggest bougie jerk in the world. But I saw that they also had uncleaned American shrimp next to it. And I said, ah, would you mind yeah. giving me the American shrimp instead? Yeah. And the guy, he was very nice about it. He was very cool. He's like, okay. Goes back, like unwraps my five shrimp, wraps the five new shrimp. But it was this moment where I thought, like, it's socially uncomfortable for me right now to be that person who's like, give me the other shrimp. But I'm glad I did I, so I could eat my soup without thinking about those little fingers in there. Good for you. But it's hard, you know. It is. How do you make those choices? And then, like, I don't even know if that one bowl of soup can counteract the numbers of other bowls of slave shrimp soup I'm probably eating. I know. Elsewhere in the restaurants. And, and honestly, like, that was a situation where you felt like um, you had the autonomy to make a choice that could act upon the information you had. It's not clear that in all instances you would you would have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So step one is actually like edification and like knowing all the stuff that's out there about things that are problematic. And then step two is just like even being able to do something with that information. Oh yeah, and to be so lucky to be in a grocery store that has three varieties of fresh shrimp. Or to be financially capable enough to choose the thing that might be more expensive Mm -hmm. you know there's just so many things at play here we're going to eventually get to some of the structural stuff too because not all of these decisions are in your hands or in everyone's hands equally exactly 
It might be worth drive by touching on some other structural issues that we mentioned. One of them that I think got uncovered through your conversation with awesome Beth is the idea that a lot of this ethical decision-making or the burden to make decisions, responsible decisions about food choices is often placed on women if they are in the place to be a primary caregiver, or even if they're not, but somehow in operations, that's how it turns out. Mm-hmm. And it's just a big responsibility. It's a big expectation to assign to one group of people. And we oftentimes together talk about emotion work or work that's like goes unacknowledged or just assumed. And we can add this to the list of things that in many households, women become responsible for. Yeah, it's more than just going to the grocery store and picking something up. Now suddenly you're adding all kinds of reading and research and keeping track of information. That's just a lot of stuff to keep in your head all at once. Totally. Maria, when I was starting to do some of the research on this, one idea that really resonated that I felt like was a really easy way to capture some of the structural inequalities we know exist was the idea of a food desert, which Mm. is basically defined as an area that doesn't have easy non-car access to fresh foods, fruits and vegetables and other kinds of produce. Mm -hmm. And over the past couple of years, you'll see that food deserts get pointed at as the reason why a lot of people don't eat well. Mm -hmm. That the fact that they don't have the grocery store or the supermarket nearby forces them to eat processed foods from bodegas or in other places and they don't have access. Mm. So I was like, this is going to be so great. We're going to have this easy concept. It's going to be a great theory. And then came the reality check of diving more deeply into this, which is the fact that it turns out there are no easy solutions and no silver bullets. The fact that food deserts as a concept may exist, but Mm -hmm. their impact might be exaggerated. Their impact on people's ability to eat healthy. So I mean that there's basically no empirical evidence that shows adding a grocery store will dramatically change food habits of the communities nearby. Hmm. I think the marginal difference I saw in some research was like 10%. But if you stick a grocery store in a place that didn't previously have access to fresh food, people probably continue to eat the things that they were eating before for a variety of reasons, including the fact that habits are hard to break. People don't always have knowledge about the benefits of some of these other food choices. And most importantly, they may not have the money to purchase the produce that is so important because Mm. frankly, it's expensive. Mm -hmm. And we can get into Michael Pollan stuff and like salt, sugar, fat stuff, but we're very US centric in, in this particular conversation. But the way our food system is set up in the US, we, the US government subsidizes certain agricultural products not a lot of which are straight up delicious fresh fruits and vegetables. It's like Mm. corn, soy, wheat, things that are used in. So my silver bullet of the food desert concept didn't work out. But I think it is valuable to use that as an opportunity to unpack the fact that people just don't necessarily have the money to make the choices or to have these solutions sorted out for them in the forms of like, yay, I got Blue Apron now. My food gets shipped to me at home. (laughs) Yeah. That's just not viable for the vast majority of people. It isn't. Someone sends me a jicama and I'm like, what? 
I don't know what to do with this, you know, <laughs> much less someone who doesn't have the kind of flexible time that I have or access to knowledge about strange Mexican It's a foods. food. Is it a fruit? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's a, it's crunchy. I like it. It's crunchy and I like it, but I don't know what to do with it ever. Yeah. So somehow the solution is the most obvious solution, which is people need to have more money to affordably purchase the things that are good for them. And more time. And more time and more access and more knowledge. This is reminds me of a Yukon study that I was reading about, and we'll post links to all of these studies that we're making reference to. It was showing that families who use food stamps or SNAP, as it's more commonly called in government, they actually are getting as many calories as other families who are not using SNAP, but the calories just tend to be less healthy ones. So like you were saying, a lot of oils, fats, and grains, the things that are more likely to be subsidized under the farm bill and that appear in highly processed food. Um, And they're not eating nearly enough vegetables and fruit. It doesn't mean that they're just like bad decision makers. They have found that actually a lot of these families are not really buying a lot of soda. Yeah. People think they are, but they're really not. And they're attributing it more to the fact that like these people often have fewer meals and so they need their meals to have more calories in them. Oh, wow. And the higher calorie foods tend to be less healthy calories, right? So eating a Twinkie is going to give you more calories than eating a head of broccoli. Yeah. And a head of broccoli is way more expensive. So there's that. And then there's this other aspect of time. I know in our vacation leisure episode this season, we're talking a little bit about, you know, how important and what a human right it is to have some time. And part of this is the time to prepare real food is something that's really prevents a lot of people from eating it. We talk about like the slow food movement and we all love it, but slow food suggests that you have the leisure time to be slow with your food. If you're working multiple jobs, raising kids on your own or a lot of them, you just don't really have time to be slow about your food. Totally. And that also means that you're much more likely to be eating processed or pre-prepared foods that have not very healthy calories in them. But it, it's not all bad news. I mean, there are some good programs that are trying to think around this. Probably the biggest way to think around this is going to have a lot to do with big structural changes, including things like the farm bill and how we subsidize our agriculture. Yeah. But there are things like changing school lunch diets for kids to take out some of the unhealthy food and replace them with more fruits and veg. But then there's also this really cool program, the Double Up Food Bucks program. Have you heard about this? No, totally not. I love it. It's What it is is that your SNAP food stamps, basically they count double if you use them in a farmer's market. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Well, I don't feel especially hopeless about this. Like if you have the income, so I'm, I'm like not speaking for the whole world out there, but I do feel like I know more than I did before about what matters and what is good and how I can integrate that into my life. And as Kate mentioned, you have three touch points at least a day where you can exercise your knowledge and ownership over what you're doing with what you put in your body. And I I feel good about that and I feel more more empowered for sure. Yeah. And I love her suggestions about like how to make choices about what's important to you, you know? Oh my God, totally. totally Maybe can totally. you can you tell us before we wrap up like one or two things that you've done in making your food decisions that have just your standbys that you always try to do? Yeah. Well, um, one of them is picking a halal butcher that is certified humane. Mm-hmm. That's really important for me. And in New York, that's like totally possible for me. And another one is to spend more time cooking. I really, like, I got out of it for a little while, too, even after I'd learned, and just not putting the pressure on myself to do it for every meal, but to do it regularly is really important. 
Totally. That's so funny. Mine are very similar. They're one about meat and one about (laughs) cooking. Yeah. Um, I tried, uh, I was a vegetarian for a year, which was totally fine. I was still a pescatarian, but. When um, was that? uh, It was, well, it was in England, so. What are you, like, Maria, I like literally don't understand you. Like there are every podcast, (laughs) there is a surprise about Maria that I don't know. Recently, it was like you spent a whole year or semester abroad and I like literally had no clue. (laughs) Uh, I'm not, hopefully I'll keep doing this forever. I'll keep having I little it. surprises. Yeah, but now I know I, I went back to eating meat, but I, I do it as like a meat minimizer, which is like a cheesy yeah. way of saying I just try not to eat it every day. And yeah. if I am eating it a couple days in a row, I definitely want to make sure I'm not eating it every meal. Yeah. Even just making that little change really helps you reimagine your food. Like, oh, well, yeah. what am I going to do instead? And so that's been really helpful. And then the other thing is, yeah, like if I'm cooking my own meals regularly and I try to do it as many of them as I can, you know exactly what you're putting in there and you can make it taste exactly the way you like. And one of the most fun things for me about being an adult is having home cooking taste like my cooking. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's so great. Isn't that fun? Cheers. So make your home cooking taste like your cooking. Yay! Questions, comments, ideas? We'd love to hear from you at intheorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find past podcasts and more information about us at intheory.us or on our Facebook page. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and recommend us to any and all of your friends. In Theory is produced with the support of Experimental Humanities and Human Rights Radio at Bard College. Many thanks to our intern, Olive Carrollhawk, music composition and art design by the sensational Aaron Taylor Waldman. Thanks for listening. And she won't stop. <laughs>